and welcome to another edition of Resistance TV. Uh, apologies for the uh, late start. We've had more technical problems. We seem to be plagued for them on a regular basis. I don't know what's going on, but there we are. Anyway, this evening we're going to be discussing the legal action brought by the campaign against the arms trade against the UK government's decision to sell or continue selling British weapons to Saudi Arabia. These weapons are being used, as people I'm sure will be aware, to prosecute the Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen, which has created an unimaginable humanitarian catastrophe. In the last seven years alone, nearly 400,000 Yemenis have been killed in this conflict. But of course, the war is generating huge profits for British weapons manufacturers and driving bumper dividends for shareholders. So joining me to discuss the legal case in the High Court is the independent investigative journalist Mohammed Almazi, who's also the editor of the Interregnum. Uh, Mohammed's groundbreaking work includes helping to expose the state-funded Institute for Statecraft and its integrity initiative that was using public money to smear Jeremy Corbyn and key figures in the Labour Party during Jeremy's leadership. Mohammed's been following the case and uh, has written a detailed account of, of what's happened so far. So, hi, Mohammed, how are you? Welcome to the show this evening. Hello, Chris. Uh, thank you for inviting me. First time on the yeah. show. Yeah, it's good, good to have you, mate. Good to have you. And um, just, well, perhaps we just start, Marvin, um, mean, if you just sort of tell us uh, what you've discovered so far about the, the court case. Sure. So uh, Saudi Arabia invaded or intervened in, depending what language you'd like to use, uh, Yemen, uh, a fellow Arabian Peninsula country, um, in 2015, following the ouster of the uh, president there, who was meant to be an interim president. Uh, so there, there was a, if you like, an eruption of a bit of a civil war, and uh, the president was ousted by an alliance uh, led by this group known as Ansar Allah, which is uh, Partisans of God, uh, um, which is often referred to in the Western press as the Houthis, right? Mm. And CAT um, first filed its case against British arms sales back in 2015, because in 2015, the year that Saudi Arabia invaded, to restore the uh, their preferred leader into power, um, it was already evident that there was a, a series of war crimes that were being committed. And uh, Britain is the second largest uh, weapons uh, seller on the planet, after only after the United States, and is a main supplier of weaponry to Saudi Arabia. And uh, as well as uh, to other countries involved in the commission of the uh, of the invasion of the bombing campaign is primarily an air campaign. Obviously, they have troops, including mercenaries linked to uh, a mercenary firm formerly known as Blackwater, now known, I believe, as Academy. Um, but oh, they also provided weapons to the United Arab Emirates, for example. And these include fighter jets, uh, uh, paveway guided bombs, um, all manner of explosives, and apparently even cluster munitions that were sold to the Saudis were told uh, years ago, decades ago, that, that there is also evidence of cluster bombs having been used there. So CAT um, filed a, a judicial review basically saying that British arms sales are illegal. And uh, uh, part of that claim, so the claim first lost at the High Court, and they appealed to the Court of Appeal, where they ultimately won in 2019. But even as they noted at the time, and as I noted when I had first reported on their victory, it, it, the way the law works here, it's not particularly easy to challenge, you know, uh, weapon sales. In fact, it's exceptionally difficult. This, I, I, I don't know exactly, but I can't imagine there are many cases overall 
uh, in court, let alone successful ones, challenging the legality of weapons sales. And what the Court of Appeal held was the, the British government's decision to offer export licenses for military and dual-use uh, equipment was unlawful because they'd failed to do any kind of risk assessment, right? So you're selling weapons to this country. CAT has provided uh, evidence along with uh, Oxfam and uh, International and Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and other human rights organizations all added their own intervening documentation in support of CAT's application. And uh, they said that you've got to do a, a review. You can't just... Uh, um, uh, offer these export licenses because in this country, like in many others, weapons manufacturers can't just sell military equipment. They require licenses to do so. And these licenses can be closed or they can be opened. And And the licensing system in this country is also very opaque. We might have time to get into that, but that's I'd written about that a couple of years ago. That is a very opaque, yeah, no, non-transparent Yes, system. indeed. I think in my view, so if we, if we have time to, to talk, a little about that because I think people would be interested uh, in that certainly. But I mean, the campaign against the arms trade or, or CAT for for short. I mean, if you say that they, they say that I mean, like you say, there are these rules governing um, these export licenses, and and I think the basic the basis of the case that CAT is bringing is that, that the British government's flouting uh, its own export license rules, aren't they? That's in terms exactly of the right. Sales, yeah, sorry, yeah, in terms of the sales to no, Saudi Arabia, no. so yeah. Yes. So, so, and uh, one of them being the key one, which was that you didn't even bother to consider uh, uh, credible evidence of of war crimes, basically, um, what are known as uh, violations of international humanitarian law, I or IHL. It used to be known as uh, the laws of war, right? But international humanitarian law governs now the lo- the the laws of war, and so uh, they sent it back to the business, the Secretary of State for. Uh, international trade, who at the time was Liz Truss, Truss right? yeah. later became prime minister for about 40 days or so. Um, but before then, she was secretary of state. And they said, no, you, you've got to suspend until you, you can't issue more export licenses, which mm. is something. That's a victory. So they come back. They do their own consideration, internal review. It's not it's not open to public view. And they come back and Liz Truss makes an announcement in parliament. OK, we've reviewed. We found there are no pattern of 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 war crimes pattern of commission of war crimes by the saudi led coalition so it's okay and then they re uh, started reissuing more export licenses that very same year that was in 2020 so then cat has come back brought a case to the high court which began on the 31st of january this year it's a three day case so it began yesterday today uh, uh, is the second day and tomorrow or the day after it's expected to complete and which point they're arguing now they're saying okay well their their review their internal review is basically rubbish so rubbish has to be illegal that it's not possible for them to conclude based on the available evidence that there haven't been that there isn't a, a pattern and practice of serious violations of international humanitarian law that even um their their own assessment of what constitutes a serious violation of international humanitarian law is itself unlawful because it's it's inaccurate and uh, uh, we've seen over the years bombing of, uh, like confirmed bombings of schools, hospitals, residential areas, weddings, funerals, marketplaces, water treatment facilities. Basically, uh, all of the hospital infrastructures in the country has been destroyed. They bear in mind that before the war kicked off, this is a country, one of the uh, 
if you like, the country on a front line on the planet in terms of facing a, a major drought, like a long-term drought as a, as a result of lacking, um, um, you know, the draining of their freshwater reserves as they have it, underground water reserves, and not having a desalinization plant. Also, the poorest uh, country in the entire Arabic-speaking world. So that is before the Civil War, before the invasion. It also mm-hmm. imports about 90% uh, of its food, of its medicine, and other essentials. And uh, in addition to this massive aerial bombing campaign, which is, as I've, I've just described to you, you know, people uh, going to a funeral for those who were killed in an airstrike from a wedding to then be killed in the funeral thereafter. Um, world UNESCO World Heritage Sites, of uh, uh, people can look it up um, Inside, you have this area where in the mountains are caved where uh, uh, I feel like ancient dwellings, if you like, caved yeah. in, carved into the mountain. It's absolutely beautiful. And I think there might even still be people living there. So ancient city, we're talking about thousands of years old, right? So yeah. ancient civilization that predates in many other places, um, struck and destroyed in many in many parts. And people can look at the before and after photos. And there's only one party to this conflict that has an air force, and that's the Saudi-led coalition. Yeah. Um, the reason I mentioned the 90% of food and medicine that Yemen has it, it imports is because there's also a, a blockade of the country, mm. a naval blockade that is enforced in particular with a, a special assistance by France, Britain, the United States, uh, there's also a report on that. So I, I wrote an article about this in The Cradle. I think it's still on the, the front page that focuses on Middle East, or as they like to say, West Asia uh, reporting. Yeah. And it's it might still be on the front page. People can go and find it in the UK section if it's not there. And I link to all the sources, right? So when I make these claims, right, about 90% food medicine or the blockade or Britain and France being implicated in the naval blockade, there is information that's come out over the years. Declassified UK has also done excellent work on that. And um, this blockade has been so crushing in terms of its consequences that uh, uh, a recent report issued in only September last year, so 2022, um, it concluded that uh, the World Organization Against Torture concluded that it's so extreme that it satisfies the definition of torture. The report is titled uh, Torture in Slow Motion. And you can go and read how they detail that the blockade is deliberately starving millions of civilians. Um, The destruction of the water treatment facility uh, means that you have contaminated waste linking uh, leaking into drinking water, irrigation water and water that we consume that that people drink and they have no choice but to drink. I think people, Palestinians who were forced to live in Gaza, the world's largest open air prison, according to former Prime Minister David Cameron. uh, Interesting that he was prepared to make that remark. Uh, that, you know, what happens when you drink this contaminated water? Well, we now have, according to the UN, and we have had for a few years now, the world's largest cholera epidemic. Now, cholera is a bacterial infection, right? It's actually very easy to treat if you're able to treat it, if you're able to be there and treat it. But if you don't treat it, um, you ultimately die of dehydration. So you essentially, uh, sorry to be graphic, but uh, you vomit and diarrhea yourself to death. And those yeah. who are particularly vulnerable to dying this way, and many who have, are children, especially those f- uh, aged five and younger, right? So because you don't have clean water to offer them. So it's you have these crises where, at the very least, according to figures which are now outdated, 
you know, 400,000 more killed. When it's all said and done, it could well be around a million. This began under Barack Obama uh, when he was president of the United States, continued under Trump, continued under Biden. And likewise, here in the UK, the support has been ongoing. So that's the kind of overall context of this legal case that is being brought. I mean, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's truly horrific. I mean, the graphic detail that you you provided, I'm sure will shock people. People are... I'm sure aware are aware of, of the war, but you know, hearing it sort of laid out in the way you've just done, Mohammed. I mean, it, it really does bring it home. And you know, and when you're talking about the um, the bombing raids on on you know World Heritage sites, I mean, I just I'm struck by the double standards here. You know, because when ISIS, if you remember, were uh, were blowing up uh, uh, World Heritage sites, there was an absolute uproar, outrage. You know, across every newspaper, every broadcast media outlet. Politicians, you know, Western politicians were uh, expressing their their outrage, and yet here we have the U.S., Britain, France, uh, you know, Western powers actually enabling this war. Because as I understand it, uh, uh, Mohammed, uh, I mean, you know, if Britain were to stop supplying uh, Saudi Arabia with these weapons, it would severely hamper the prosecution of this war. Maybe even, you know, might help to, to to bring it to an end. I mean, is that your understanding? Well, that's the that was the conclusion of a, a confidential report, a 15-page confidential report by the French Directorate of Military Intelligence that was published in 2018, but was leaked uh, to the press or to a, a, a new investigate, uh, investigative site in France called Disclose. Uh, in fact, they were prosecuted for publishing this, so they're brand new investigative site and they were arrested and prosecuted i don't know what has happened with the case i have to follow up to see if it collapsed or if they were the prosecution was successful but according to one of the one of the key takeaways of that internal military intelligence report is that if britain the us and france stop providing military and logistical support to saudi arabia and the united arab emirates the war on yemen would end or their their role in the war would end therefore the vast majority of the casualties, which are linked to Saudi Arabia and the alliance, would come to an end. So that was so, so Britain is culpable. Then Britain is culpable. Really, Britain literally. I mean, you know, sometimes people they say I, I indulge in hyperbole, mm-hmm. but literally, Britain has blood on its hands, doesn't it? On that well, basis, then. Well, without not only is the support. I mean, the support provided by Britain, the United States, is all encompassing. There's the naval blockade that they support, Every, all the weapons that they're using, the ammunition, the bombs. They've admitted to assisting with targeting. So they said that our yes. people in Saudi Arabia assisting with targeting helps to avoid committing war crimes, which is amazing if they're actually involved in what is little more than a mass carpet bombing campaign of large segments of of the civilian uh, population. Um, they are, I mean, up to and including... Uh, even providing in-air refueling of the fighter jets and the bomber jets as they're as they're requiring it, and that's what the United States also provides. So yes, they are. It's if you like the Saudis are paying for it, but everyone else are the ones. It's almost like a mercenary operation where Saudi Arabia is paying the money, but France, Britain, the United States, Jordanian and Emirati pilots. Because I don't even know. If any Saudi pilots, perhaps they're being trained now for the first time in these in these fighter jets. 
Saudi Arabia is historically one of these countries which purchased all of this very hot, expensive gear, military equipment from Britain and, and elsewhere, but they never really used it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what countries were they invading? Uh, and, and in fact, as Chris Hedges recently pointed out to me, when he was uh, uh, embedded with the uh, U.S. Marines during uh, the first Gulf War, and they were in a, ter- um, a part of Iraqi-occupied Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabians abandoned all their highly sophisticated equipment and were driving away because actually, as was noted in terms of these tanks being sent to Ukraine now, these are very complicated equipment that you need to train in regularly. You need to be able to coordinate in, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like you just you know, sell a bunch of fighter jets to a country and all of a sudden they know how to fly these fighter jets. They actually have to spend a lot of money training in them and constantly training and being trained in them. And that's also where a big part of the money is in is also in the service contracts. I was told this by a member of the parliamentary committee, which which tries to somewhat monitor arms sales in this country. Um, but uh, uh, that uh, the real money is in the years-long service contracts with the equipment. So, yes, I think it's, it's very difficult to argue that this is uh, not only is this I mean, quite often the Saudi, even I use the term Saudi-led war, but it is in a sense misleading because, as I've said, the Saudis are paying for it. But without Britain, France and the United States, it couldn't happen because they're providing the equipment, they're providing logistical support, they're providing. I mean, we may find out one day that perhaps even American British pilots are in the planes or ha- or 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 as co-pilots, perhaps with the because we know that Jordanian and Emirati or British trained fighter pilots are also in there. So it really is a massive uh, operation in terms of the number of countries involved. This was happening at the same time as Syria. It's ongoing, in fact. And yet I remember being very frustrated that for the first couple of years, there was no reporting at all uh, 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 in in Britain that I could see, other than this one journalist at the Times, actually. She was reporting on it. But I didn't see it at The Guardian for the first couple of years. Uh, I was at the Real News Network at the time, and we were interviewing people about it. But it's amazing how little... I mean, this is a country that is, does Yemen pose a threat to Britain or to the United States? I mean, this is presumably simply driven by by the profit motive, isn't it? And imperialist sort of, uh, you know, the imperialist sort of actions of, of um, you know, Britain and uh, another Western. Well, so Britain has a, you know, a kind of colonial uh, uh, link, doesn't it, to uh, to Yemen? And uh, That's right. I think it has a long-standing relationship, doesn't it, with uh, Saudi Arabia going back to the 19... 19- 30s. I wonder whether you might be able to say a little bit about that as well. Um, right. So in the 1930s, in fact, uh, Britain backed both sides in the civil war in what was then just called the Arabian Arabian Peninsula. Um, they backed both the Hashemites and and the this House of Saud, the clan of Saud, who ended up winning out. And now the the namesake of the country is after the uh, after that clan, the family. But that's 1932, or uh, in which uh, Saudi Arabia was which was when, sorry, Saudi Arabia was founded. And um, Britain's relationship with Saudi Arabia is both economic and political, geostrategic. So um, it's been noted in the past that, uh, uh, and actually I, I noted it in the in my article as well, that this relationship, you know, Saudi Arabia has represented an ever-increasing export market, right? So uh, I did some calculations going to data available from the Office of National Statistics. And uh, let's just see something over here. Let me just pull it up. 
because I don't have it uh, in terms of my memory, but uh, the data shows, yes. Okay. So between 1999 and 2021 alone, that's the, that was the most recent data I could find. The UK exported a total of 142 billion, 456 million pounds sterling worth of goods and services to Saudi Arabia. 64 wow. billion, 800, so 64 billion, 808 million of which was exported since Saudi Arabia's 2015 invasion. So that's a huge chunk is only since 2015. And that's uh, the ONS doesn't make clear how much of that relates to military goods versus other luxury items, right? So I did try to find that out, but it, it, it's uh, probably due to the fact that it's a very opaque uh, uh, system here. But yeah. uh, it's beyond mere selling goods, right? So there's a quote, if I can quote a former UK ambassador, Saudi Arabia, Sir Willie Morris, he was writing a uh, Labour Foreign Secretary Michael Stewart in 1969. And he says, um, valuable as this export market is, he's referring to Saudi Arabia, it is of less importance to us than Saudi Arabia's role in the preservation of our wider politico-economic interests in the Middle East. Um, these interests, according to the various documents that you read, include ensuring access to Saudi Arabia's substantial oil reserves, uh, other oil, substantial oil reserves in the Persian Gulf, right? So other Gulf countries next door, as well as yeah. uh, uh, their markets, and also the suppression of left-wing, secular nationalist, anti-imperial, uh, and other uh, revolutionary movements, right? So Saudi Arabia has often been a financer of covert operations when Britain and the United States either wanted additional funds or for whatever political reasons, they couldn't be seen to be funding various operations. So in the 1980s, uh, people may be aware of the far-right death squads known as the Contras, or like literally yes. counter-revolutionaries. That's what their name meant. So that, at least that was open and honest. Ronald Reagan referred to them as freedom fighters, though, at the time. And this was a far-right death squad essentially created by the CIA that was seeking to bring down the sort of leftist, progressive, Sandinista government. And they waged Nicaragua. Nicaragua. Yeah, sorry, that's correct. And they waged a horrific, uh, dirty war there. Uh, tens of thousands killed with the, by these far right death squads. People skinned alive and hanged from trees, etc. And when there was a particular atrocity, that if I recall correctly, was it the raping and executing of some American nuns? Nuns, yeah, yeah. yeah th that resulted in Congress under the Reagan administration passing a law prohibiting further support for the Cong Contras. So the Reagan administration would continue to support them indirectly, illegally. That became partly known as the Iran-Contra affair, which involved yes. the CIA trafficking in cocaine, et cetera, secretly to, to provide funds to the Contras and selling weapons to Iran during the Iran-Iraq uh, war. They're rather, well, they're also selling weapons, of course, to Iraq. Mm -hmm. Now, Saudi Arabia also provided covert funding to the Contras, right, to assist the Contras there. Uh, it's not that they have any particular stake in what's going on in Latin America, but as part of this alliance, this long-term alliance between, you know, we keep you in power, you you spend lots of your petrodollars back buying our goods, luxury goods, equipment, invested in our property markets, inflate the property market, um, right, recycling the petrodollar, if you like. And uh, also you help us as part of our anti-communist, anti-leftist, anti-nationalist campaign over the last decades. And communist, uh, Saudi Arabia is a long-standing anti-communist ally of Britain and the United States. Uh, yeah. In Soviet Union and Afghanistan, they did the same thing when they helped to fund the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in order to keep, in order to make mm -hmm. the, the so uh, Soviet intervention 
in Afghanistan as painful as possible. Yes, uh, yes, indeed. Although that that blew that, that, that sort of blew back, didn't it? I mean, uh, in terms of uh, the way in which the uh, the US uh, sought to uh, you know ferment the opposition to the uh, Soviet uh, troops, um, which Soviet led you know, directly to you know to the Al Qaeda. Uh, Al-Qaeda, yeah, exactly. 9-11, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, and all the rest of it. So, so. From the perspective of major planners, people who believe in great power competition, I'm not sure if they see that as a loss. I mean, you have, well, yeah. you know, for them, they're like, we have gave Soviet Union a bloody nose, hundreds of thousands of people dead. Okay, so decades later, some terrorist attacks happen. But, uh, you know, we're a very powerful country. We can compensate. Yeah, right? well, indeed. I mean, the thing is, these people are sociopaths, aren't they? They're kind of misanthropes. They're kind of... Uh, it's utterly amoral. I mean, it's how uh, these people <laughs> right to the top. It's astonishing, really. And when I was in Parliament, I mean, you know, both Tory and Labour MPs kind of justifying Britain's relationship with uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, saying it was in the national interest. You know, it's shocking, really shocking. But just uh, finally, uh, Marmot, I wonder whether you mentioned about the opaque uh, nature of the um, uh, export license rules and, and so on, and said that you'd written about that. And uh, we did say that we'd, we'd, we'd return to this before the end of our conversation. Whether you maybe just say a bit about what you discovered in, in that regard. Right. So uh, one of the things is it's, it's impossible to tell exactly uh, uh, how much and of what Britain is selling. There are some export licenses which are clear. They'll, they'll, they'll kind of say, well, they are a category licenses. We'll authorize the export of up to 500 million pounds of category X type of, of 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 materials which could be uh, rocket launchers grenades ammunition what have you but you don't know how much of what you're just saying we're granting you this kind of range of how much money's worth of equipment you can sell and you can sell as much as you like so that's pretty vague Oh, this is annoying. I think uh, even see what right, category you froze there a moment. Uh, uh, just to go, just oh, I'm going to froze it again, mate. <laughs> this is a fro- This is frustrating. Being... Yeah. Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you now, uh, Mohammed. Yeah, you just froze there briefly. Yeah, sorry if you just okay, backtrack on the last what, what you just said a couple of uh, few sentences again. Sure. So you have some export licenses where you can tell. Uh, uh, vaguely what might be exported, but you don't know how much of what item is being exported, merely that there's an entire category of items up to a certain value, pound sterling value that is being exported. And other export licenses that are issued, which are which you have no idea uh, uh, what is being exported, right? So it's that's very opaque. You can't just go and look up this information and see exactly what is being sold. Another thing I was told by a, a parliamentarian who 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 was on that committee, he said that the committee itself is a is a bad joke, right? He said that the committee has no real oversight power, that um, they ask for information, they don't get it, that they're also told that the government officially does not monitor the continued use of weapons itself. So let's say they sell certain types of weaponry to Turkey, as far as they're concerned, that's the end of the matter. We've decided that Turkey can legitimately buy it. We don't then f- look into whether or not they sell it to somebody else that they're not supposed to, or whether or not they're using it in a capacity that they're not meant to be using it in. Um, I always wonder myself if that is completely true 
I mean, surely that would be useful information for their own purposes, regardless of whether they'd want it publicly available. But if you if you at least officially you don't do it and maybe there's yeah. some people in some room somewhere, which perhaps I mean, it might just be wishful thinking. But that means that there's no information you can – no freedom of information request that you can file. There's yeah. no documentation you can claim uh, request because Britain – the British state says that we don't monitor what happens to our weapons after right. we sell them. So yeah. all, all the way around, it's it seems even more opaque than the American system. Funny yeah. enough, not that the American system is any good, but it's just no, that no, you they... can get the data. Sure. Um, well, I mean, it's just – what... Time to – go ahead, go, go. You know, I was going to say so further evidence that we that we need a, a kind of a reset and the amongst the political class because clearly our uh, our elected leaders are are, are failing us as uh, desperately failing us and and causing death and destruction around the around the world. It, you know, and uh, yes, it might generate profits and dividends, but uh, I mean, at what cost? Uh, and they seem completely you know, devoid of any. Sort of uh, compassion, these uh, characters that, that make these decisions. It's, it's absolutely shocking, and uh, certainly not not. To, I don't think in, in the interests of, of the country, despite what politicians used to say to me that it was in the national interest to, you know, continue to support these sorts of activities. But did you want to just say something in conclusion? Did you say you said we still got some time? Do we still have some time to to uh, mention well, a few other things? How much yeah, time things. Yeah, I mean, I was just I was going to wrap it. Uh, I was going to ask actually where, where people could find the, your work actually, but we'll perhaps do that when you've uh, said a few other comments. Sure. So just uh, there are some things I wasn't able to mention even in the article, um, but um, um, Ansar Allah are a sect of Shia Islam, and they're vis- very vociferously against sort of the Salafi Wahhabist type of Islam, and they've been yeah. battling Al Qaeda in Yemen, and. and uh, What's happened as a result of this alliance of Saudi Arabia, this bombing uh, Ansar Allah and their allies, is that Al-Qaeda in Yemen has substantially grown, right? Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula, to the point that they are providing direct support, and Western governments have been shown to be complicit in this, to these reactionary uh, Sunni chauvinists, uh, Wahhabi Salafist extremists, that if you were here in this country, you'd be designated as a terrorist, right? So so that also shows that these interventions consistently placed all too often Britain on the side of far-right reactionary theocratic uh, uh, militants, which is one way I prefer to sort of describe them because that's what they are. They are theocratic and and they are reactionary. So that's just that item that that isn't in my piece because it, the piece would have mm-hmm. gone on for too long. But a a, fa- a concluding point: um, Katz presented its arguments as the claimant yesterday on the thirty first. Today, the first of February, the the government is presenting its open arguments, and tomorrow and possibly the day after, depending on how far this. Uh, arguments go, there will be closed hearings, so secret evidence that we can't hear or we can't monitor. And uh, during the uh, uh, during today's arguments, according to the campaign against arms trade, the kinds of things that the government lawyer has been saying to the court is that the UN panel of experts' findings, right, about violations of international law, which have been submitted to the High Court uh, to consider, that they should be treated with caution because, quote, they will not have the relevant expertise and experience that are needed to assess uh, violations of international humanitarian law. This is despite the fact that the UN panel on Yemen uh, included an uh, an expert on international humanitarian law. Um, mm. The government the government lawyer also says that uh, told the court today 
that uh, hundreds of credible allegations of Saudi breaches of the laws of war do not count as many. He said they're not many. And he compared this to what the UK and the US did in Iraq and Syria, which is almost like essentially what they're saying is because the US and the UK have committed extensive war crimes in Iraq and Syria, that yeah, means it's okay, okay for Saudi yeah. Arabia to do it. And um, so it's these types of arguments. They're also saying that government decisions as it relates to Yemen shouldn't be capable of being scrutinized mm -hmm. by the court. Uh, so in essentially saying that Yemeni deaths are outside of his jurisdiction almost uh, of the UK's uh, jurisdiction, which is, you know, uh, can you imagine any uh, how Britons would react if courts in another country said that? Oh, absolutely. Well, they, bombings in this country, say. For sure. The double standards uh, of Britain, the US, the Western countries, the G7 countries, perhaps uh, put it that way. I mean, it's I mean, it's, it's it's breathtaking, frankly, it really is. When do we expect a verdict? So, uh, well, I mean, the case will close in the next couple of days, and we don't know. I mean, with these kinds of things, it could take weeks, it could take months. We're still waiting for the High Court in Julian Assange's appeal to come yeah. back to issue dates regarding how many how many of their appeal arguments are going to be allowed to be heard and, and for how long, etc. And they filed that uh, a number of months ago last year. So with these things... You know, it, it really is anybody's guess how long it takes. Sure. There's still backlog, back, backlog in many of these courts as a result of the COVID lockdown as well. I know because I've been covering other cases uh, and their yeah. courts have been saying that we have extensive backlog still from last year. So mm. uh, I don't know is the short answer. Well, listen, thanks for, for coming on the, the show this evening, uh, Mohammed. Really appreciate it. I hope you'll 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 come back again. We've been going for a couple of years or so now, and I know it's the first time you've you've been a guest. And uh, yeah, it's been really interesting and uh, stimulating uh, discussion. I think and uh, quite horrific, frankly, the detail mm -hmm. that you've that you've provided. Thank you for that, and hopefully that will encourage more people to perhaps get involved in the campaign against the the arms trade. And uh, you know, useful. I think you know, knowledge is power, isn't it? And, and you've certainly equipped us with with a lot of knowledge. This evening in this program, look, you do uh, some excellent work, Ahmed. Where can people uh, follow you and, and get access to your work? Um, so follow me at Twitter at M for Mohammed El Mazi, my last name E L M A A Z I, and I publish when I do publish because I also do some editing work and what have you. But when I do publish, um, Consortium News is one of the more recent outlets I published with Electronic Intifada, Jacobin, The Dissenter. And uh, most recently, at least this article uh, at cra uh, the Cradle, so it's the Cradle.co. And uh, uh, when the decision finally does come out, I'll follow. I'll follow up with a follow up report. As right. To and what about the interregnum? Is that how's that going? Is that are you still? That's right. Still so, so that's my own personal uh, originally set up as a blog, and where I also publish material. But I've been so consumed with work with other things, I haven't been able to publish there recently. That's the interregnum.net. Okay. But. I haven't been promoting it recently because I haven't been publishing anything there recently. Okay, but nevertheless, you presumably there'll be historical stuff on there that people oh, can absolutely, uh, yes. get access to, and I'm sure that'll be very interesting, judging by our discussion this evening. The very uh, erudite uh, Mohammed Al Mazi. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Mohammed, for for coming on the show. Thank you, people, for watching. We'll be back next week at seven pm. Hopefully, seven pm, <laughs> barring any technical difficulties that we seem to be encountering on a regular basis now. But that's the plan anyway. Seven o'clock next week, and uh, good night.